You may be seated as we continue in worship. We just sang about no longer being slaves and God taking us out of Egypt and bringing deliverance. And all through the Bible, Exodus, Numbers, and all the way through the time of Jesus, the people celebrated Passover. A reminder that God brought us out of Egypt, defeated the gods of Egypt, and provided a way to find forgiveness. Passover was a way in which you took a perfect, innocent lamb who had to die for what you had done wrong. And you took the blood of that lamb and you put it on your doorposts and across the head of the door. And when the angel of death came over, its judgment passed over you. That's why we call it Passover. So when Jesus was celebrating what we know as communion or the Lord's table, it's actually Passover. It's just Passover fulfilled. For Jesus took the unleavened bread, tracing back to the time of Moses. He said, you've got to have unleavened bread because there's no time to wait for it to rise. God's going to deliver us to the promised land. And the blood from the lamb was a reminder that God made a way. And the people worshipped him for it. So we sing this next song and prepare for communion, for Passover together. Let us worship a God who made a way for us to be forgiven, to not live under condemnation, delivered us from the bondage of our own habits and our own brokenness. I don't think we'll ever know the cost of giving your own son for mankind, but we worship him for what he's done. You know, Jesus said, whenever you gather together to remember me, why do we need to remember him? We live in a world that dismembers us with lies. Lies that say we're living under condemnation. The lie that God doesn't care about wrongdoing. Both those lies dismember you in relationships. Remembering his body, broken for us, remembers, it puts us back together. Reminds us that in Christ there is now therefore no condemnation in Christ. And yet our sins were so severe that he had to be tortured for it. Let us remember his Passover body given us. There were four cups at the Passover meal. Jesus took the third cup, the cup of redemption, tracing back to Moses that this cup will now remind you of my blood given for you. I am your Passover lamb. I am the perfect lamb. Let us partake. Father, we're gathered together as a community, online, all over the city, all over the community, even all over the world. And we celebrate Passover today, a reminder that what we have in common is that we all fall short and we need you. And you did for us what we could not do for ourselves. You delivered us from Egypt and brought us to the promised land of forgiveness and peace in you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, part of the way we worship as a church is finding ways to take the generosity of God and to give that to others. As you came in today, or maybe you saw on the screen earlier, one of the things we're doing this month is we have a care supply drive going on. And the care supply drive is a way in which uh, we can take hygiene products and we can take those and provide those to inner parish ministries we work with in one of those brown bags. 
So maybe one of the ways you want to worship God is by doing unto others as God has done unto you, which is providing for the needs of those around us. So make that an opportunity for you as you kind of think about the next weeks and months together. If you've been with us, we have been in the book of Numbers, and we've been on an incredible journey of exploring what God has for us, and we've been specifically looking at three types of wildernesses that God takes us through. We began with the, uh, the wilderness of Sinai. This is the wilderness of preparation. It's here in this wilderness that we've been in that God is using the wilderness times to prepare you for the promised land teach you how to trust him, teach you how to, to, to engage with him, how to count on God and his presence in the center of our life because God has great things in store for us. That's the wilderness of Sinai. We'll pretty soon in just a few weeks be entering the, the wilderness of Paran, the wilderness of testing, where God will test you and he'll bring you through the same circumstances in your marriage, in your life, around and around again to see if you've learned how to apply his truth how to choose thankfulness versus grumbling and find that his way is best here in the wilderness of Paran. And then we'll eventually travel to the wilderness of Moab and we'll learn about the wilderness of temptation. We'll learn that when we come to temptation about anger or power or money and our, our, all of our individual temptations, we have a decision to make. Will we trust what God says about the circumstance, feelings and attitudes, or will we define success and temptation the way we want and what will bring us to the promised land. I mentioned a few weeks ago that I got a chance to experience some wilderness in Israel years ago and it's a barren, barren place. Not a lot of resources when you go through wilderness. That's our group walking down the path there. And yet God will use the wilderness times in your life, the dry times, the challenging times, to give you the skills and the resources to experience life and life eternal later in this life and in the life to come. Life is a wilderness designed to prepare you to become the best version of yourself. And today we're going to look at following God's timing. And God's timing can be very, very frustrated. frustrating. He sometimes goes faster than you want. Often he goes slower than you want. He never seems to go at the timing that you know is best. And I think there's very few people in this room who know that better than, than probably Bengals fans, right? You talk about God's timing. He's several decades late, but finally last week when it was a celebration, right? And we hope that that's the celebration still to come next weekend. Yet I don't know if you saw the interview with McPherson. But he has this big sign, a big shirt on that says, God is good as he celebrates that field goal. But his mom this week posted a picture and the picture was during the wilderness times when he decided to switch from playing soccer to playing football. He had this little bitty tiny soccer goal they kept in the backyard. When he decided to switch over to football, he literally bolted on two pieces of PVC pipe. And he sat in the backyard and with kind of an unusual kick, a combination of being a soccer player for so long and switching over to, to becoming a football player, he just kicked and kicked between two pieces of PVC pipe with no one watching, very few people cheering him on, with no hopes that this PVC pipe time would set you up for the Super Bowl, God used all those kicks in the backyard, all that training during wilderness time to set him up for his rookie season. In fact, that soccer goal with PVC pipe is still sitting in mom's backyard today. 
God can use your wilderness preparation time to prepare you for the future. And Passover is the secret to following God's timing. You see, when someone breaks you out and someone frees you, you will follow them anywhere, anytime, and at any pace. And that's where we're going to follow God's timing today and realize that he broke us out and he freed us so that we can follow him anywhere he chooses to go. Oh, I don't want to go there, but I trust you. Anytime, oh, it's time to move again, I want to settle more. And at any pace, if he asks us to slow down when we want to go faster. We're going to look at the Passover together, we're going to look at the, the pillar, and then we're going to look at a pair of, of, of trumpets together. And how when you can't trace God's hand in your life, it's often hard to, you can trust his heart. Let's begin with the Passover together. The Passover. The Passover teaches us that I can trust what God says. I can trust what he says, and I can trust where he's going because of what he did. Because of what he did in our life. Because of the way in which he delivered us at Passover, and and that was a combination of taking the blood of a perfect lamb and putting it over your doorposts, as I mentioned earlier. But he's also defeated the, the gods of Egypt, right? And he's also brought them through the promised land. There's just so many ways in which he has been working in the people's life to deliver them from Egypt. And he's saying, before we move on to the next stage toward the promised land, we need to re-celebrate Passover because I want you to know you can trust me. You've been up against the Egyptians, we're about to be up against giants. You've been up against the Egyptian gods, we're about to be up against fortified cities. Look at what I did in the past, how I provide in the past, and I want you to build into you the ability to trust me in the future. So we begin in Numbers chapter 9 and 10, and we find ourselves celebrating Passover. The Lord spoke to Moses, where are they at? In the wilderness of Sinai. In the first month of the second year, for two years they've been in this wilderness preparing. After they had come out of Egypt, why not just go straight to the promised land? Two years of wilderness. Let the children of Israel keep the Passover at its appointed time. Fourteenth day of the month at twilight, keep it at its appointed time. According to all its rites and ceremonies, you shall keep it. So Moses told the children of Israel that they should keep the Passover. And they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the first month at twilight in the wilderness, there it is again, of Sinai. So according to all the Lord commanded him, so the children did. Just look, Passover, 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 Passover. What continues, just how important Passover was. Now, there were certain men who were defiled by human corpse. They were unclean because they touched something dead. So they could not keep the Passover on that day. And they came before Moses and Aaron and said, hey, we want to keep the Passover even though we're defiled. We were defiled by by human corpse. We were kept from presenting the offering of the Lord at its appointed time among the children of Israel. Moses said to them, stand still. I'm going to go talk to God about this. And he does. The Lord said to Moses... Speak to the children of Israel concerning this, saying, If any one of you or your prosperity is unclean, ceremonially unclean, because of a corpse, or they've been far away on a journey, he still can keep the Lord's Passover. Even if you're unclean, if you're ceremonially haven't done everything right, you can still come to Passover to be cleansed. Continues. So on the 14th day of the second month at twilight, they, were, they kept it. They, they began to eat unleavened bread. And bitter herbs, a reminder of the bitterness of bondage. They shall leave none of it until morning. 
nor break one of its bones, according to all the ordinances of the Passover that they keep it. But the man who is clean and is not on a journey and ceases to keep the Passover, he's going to be cut off from his people. This is so important that if you can't prioritize what I did and how I forgave you and how I made a way, you're not part of the community. You don't get what this is all about if you're not prioritizing my deliverance. However, it doesn't matter whether you're Jewish or whether you're Egyptian or a stranger. If a stranger, someone who's not Jewish, dwells among you, they can keep the Passover. It's open to everybody who wants forgiveness. He must do so according to the rite of Passover. And there it is again. And according to its ceremony, you shall have one ordinance, both for the stranger. You shall have one ordinance, both for the stranger and the native of the land. So God is saying, my Passover, my forgiveness is for everyone. I want to break everyone free from their literal Egypt and their metaphorical Egypt. Everyone to be forgiven of their uncleanness if they come to me. And when you understand Passover, and New Testament says Jesus is our Passover, you realize God broke you out and he freed you. Whatever else he does in your life, even if you don't understand it, you trust that he has your best in mind. Lieutenant Dangler certainly knew that. In Vietnam, he was on a special top-secret mission to take out some of the Viet Cong. However, his plane got shot down, and he and his buddies were captured into a makeshift POW camp where they were beaten and starved for five months. They planned their escape, and after five months, they made a way out, and then they found the greater challenge was still before them in an impenetrable jungle where they would survive for 23 days while still being hunted by the Viet Cong. They came to a rock ledge, and Lieutenant Dangle looked out, and he realized the jungle went everywhere. There was no way he could escape without help. He kept waiting at that rock's ledge, hoping he could get the attention of someone to rescue him. When coming along in a sky bomber, sky raider they were called, was a pilot by the name of Dietrich. He glanced over and he saw someone had taken a parachute and formed SOS out of the parachutes, calling out for help. He radioed in, he said, have any Americans been shot down in this area? And they said, no because it was six months ago. But he decided to to take the risk. So Dietrich called in what they called the the Jolly Green Giant Helicopters. They thought it might be a Viet Cong and the whole thing was a setup, but they decided to take the risk. So sure enough, this SOS set up a Jolly Green Giant Helicopter who showed up and dropped down the ladder. Dietrich watched as this man crawled his way up and found out he was an American and they had rescued a POW. It would be months later until they were stationed in the same location where Dangler and Dietrich became best of friends. And they would remain friends until Dangler died of Lou Gehrig's disease at the end of his life. Now, when someone rescues you from a dire circumstance, responds to your pleads for help, does for you what you couldn't do for yourself, do you say, well, I guess I have to spend time with them? I guess I ought to be their friend? Or do you owe them such a life debt that you're like, I trust you, I owe you, how can I please you, how can I help you? I trust your heart for me. 
That's what Passover does for us. For those in the book of Numbers, they look back to Passover. For us, we look back to the cross, our Passover, that we can trust the God who died for us and broke us free and rescued us, that we befriend him because we want to. It's the lesson of Passover. Our second lesson is the lesser, uh, lesson of uh, the pillar, the pillar of fire. See, what we're going to find is that there's kind of a motto in the Egyptian camp uh, as they've left Egypt and they're now in Israel. And the motto that Moses will give them is, you know, follow that flame and camp by that cloud. God is going to give them a way in which they can follow him. During day, he's a pillar of cloud and at night, he's a pillar of fire. And we learned five weeks ago, I guess now, that God set up the camp like a giant cross with his presence in the center. And during the day, on the top of the tabernacle, the tent was a pillar of cloud representing God's presence. And at night was this incredible flashy nightlight, a a pillar of fire going up to heaven. And this pillar would set the pace of God's timing for their life. Here's what happens. Now, on the day that the tabernacle was raised up, The cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony. Just another name for it. They would go there from evening until morning. It was above the tabernacle like the appearance of fire. Pillar of fire, pillar of cloud. So it was always, God's presence was always with them, and this was the symbol of it. The cloud covered it all day, and the appearance of fire by night. Whenever the cloud was taken up, time to move, the children would journey to follow the cloud. And the place the clouds settled, there the children would pitch their tents. At the command of the Lord, the people would journey. God's moving, we're moving. At the command of the Lord, God would stop and they would camp. As long as the clouds stayed above the tabernacle, they remained encamped. Even when, even when you don't want to move, God says move. Even when you don't want to stay, God says that. Even when the cloud continued long, many days above the tabernacle. The children of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and did not journey. But come on, God, we got to get on with this. No, it's not time yet. They trusted his timing and moved when he moved and stayed when he stayed. So it was that when the cloud was above the tabernacle a few days, according to the command of the Lord, they remained encamped, and according to the command of the Lord, they would journey. So it was when the cloud remained only from evening until morning, and then the cloud was taken up in the morning, that they would journey. Whether by day or by night, where the cloud was taken up, they would journey. I love this line. Whether it was two days, a month, or a year. Boy, there's the frustration of God in life right there. I have been sitting in this moment for a day. I'm kind of annoyed. Two days, I'm impatient. A month, something's wrong with God. A year, my career should be here. My son should have changed his attitude by now. My marriage should be out of the winter season back in the spring yesterday. But sometimes God has a sitting in wilderness for two days, a month, or a year. And he wants us to learn things before we move to the next phase, before we move on to the promised land. The cloud remained above the tabernacle, and the children of Israel would remain encamped before they journey. When it was taken up, they would then journey. At the command of the Lord, they remained encamped. At the command of the Lord, they journeyed. And they kept the charge of the Lord at the command of the Lord by the hand of Moses. It's very hard to trust God's timing unless you trust his heart from Passover. 
that he knows best. Now, quick map. If you look at most Bible maps, they kind of trace where the Israelites went. They start up here in Egypt. And then there's four different proposals on the Red Sea crossing. Some people have the Red Sea crossing in this Reed Sea, which uh, is kind of a retranslation of the word red. I don't take that view at all. It doesn't make any sense to me that you'd cross a, a basically a giant lake. Why would the Egyptians follow them when they could go around and meet them on the other side? But that is one view. There's another view that the Red Sea crossing happens on the west side of the Sinai Peninsula. There's two other views that happens on the east side, and we'll talk about that in a few weeks. One is here, and one is down here. So depending on where you have the crossing depends on where these different wildernesses are. So I'm going to give you kind of my view. Um, it's going to show up in some maps. It's not a big deal. There's people who agree or disagree. Based on where you have the crossing occur is where Mount Sinai is. So some people have Mount Sinai here, but if they cross the Red Sea, the Mount Sinai would be over here. So for example, I have the crossing looking something like this. They leave Egypt, they make it about here, they turn to a location here. We'll look at that in a few weeks. There's an incredible beach there that would hold a million people. They crossed over here, Mount Sinai is here. And then they wander up and they have a little vote. Twelve people are going to vote whether or not they should go into the land. The vote doesn't go well, as we'll see in a few weeks. And so we end up with these three wildernesses. The wilderness of Sinai, which I have over here to the east, uh, the wilderness of Paran, which is a testing, which is about here, and then the wilderness of Moab, and then they cross over the Jordan River to get to the Promised Land. So just keep that in mind. As we're looking, you might see some Bible maps that are different from the ones I'm using. It really determines where you think the Red Sea crossing occurred. But either way, wherever these things are, God is leading them and pacing them all along the way. Can they trust him? Will they trust him? Will they follow his pace? I don't know if you're a dog person, but I grew up with a dog named Dusty, and then we had, uh, uh, actually, my, my dog growing up was Rusty, a toy poodle, and then as a family, when my kids were young, we had a dog that was also a toy poodle named Dusty, so we had Rusty and Dusty. And I was amazed that every time I took Dusty out for a walk, I had envisioned, you know, I'm going to you know, kind of walk along with the dog and have a good time. If you've ever gone walking with a dog, you'll notice something, that you go out for a casual stroll and the dog never wants to go at your pace. You're trying to have a casual stroll, he's always, you're never at the pace the dog thinks you should go. And on the way home, you're running late, so you've got to kind of jog a little bit. Come on, buddy, come on. And, and as you're running, oh, 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 right, that dog is just, he's like, has no energy at all. He's dragging along, his butt's dragging, oh, his ears. And you had these, uh, this vision of just enjoying a walk with your dog where he's next to you. But either he's way behind you or he's way ahead of you. And you get real frustrated because you just want to spend time at pace with your dog. And I realized over the years that I am dusty. I am rusty. I either want to run ahead of God want to run behind God because the pace is more important than spending time with God. As you walk around our church, you're going to hear a lot of people who God has had them encamped for two days, a month, or a year in some place they don't want to be. I was talking to a friend recently at our church. Back in October, they had plans and goals for the next three to six months, but it's been over 90 days now that they've been in the hospital because of medical condition. And the annoyance of that, the frustration of that, that this isn't fair, God, all understandable emotions. 
And yet there's currently not a good way to get moving unless God does something supernatural. I was chatting with the wife whose husband's in this circumstance, and she said, I guess I've decided to call this my Holy Spirit vacation right now. Like, well, that's a way to reframe it. I don't like the fact that we're not moving. I don't like the fact there isn't progress, but God is just asking us to sit here in this moment and trust Him. I talked to another guy a few weeks ago. People were praying and interacting with a friend of mine, and he said, Chad, I've been kind of sitting in this condition, this medical condition I'm in, and I never would have chosen it. I wouldn't have planned for it, but it has supercharged my relationship with God. I'm taking the end of my day and actually reflecting on what I did and where I cooperated the Holy Spirit and what he wants to do in me and through me. Something I said I should do as a Christian, but I never actually participated in until God slowed me down and deepened me. Are you willing to take the moments that the pillar slows down to let God deepen you, to trust him? Even if you don't like the timing, even if you're ready to move on, even if you wish they would have repented or turned back or said sorry or given you more access to the grandkids, all the things you have expectations about, but are you willing to sit in this moment and let God deepen you? Whether it's a few days, a month, or a year. So Passover, the pillar. Lastly, he introduces them to a pair of silver trumpets. So they're going through the wilderness. We're about to transition now from Sinai to Paran, or Paran, depending on how you say it. And as he does that, he begins to talk about a pair of silver, not like a shofar, a pair of actual silver trumpets he wants them to make. So if you've ever been to Rome, you will see that there's a picture of the Romans stealing all of the sacred articles from the Jewish temple, which happened um, in history. And so you can see the menorah there on the left-hand side. They're taking the different instruments. Well, right in the middle to the right-hand side, you will see two trumpets that the Romans have taken from the Jews. I'll highlight them there for you. And sure enough, these are the silver trumpets that God introduced here in the book of Numbers. Here's what those trumpets were for. They looked something like this. They were handcrafted, beautiful pieces, and they were used to call the leaders and call the people to feast and to gather for a fight. Here's what God says. The Lord said to Moses, make two silver trumpets for yourself. You shall make them of hammered work. You shall use them for calling the congregation and for directing the movement of the camps. When they blow both of them, all the congregation shall gather before you. So it's like one if by leader, two if by sea. So it's one if by leader, two if by congregation. So if you hear two, everybody gather. But if they blow only one, just the leaders, the heads of divisions come to you. They will gather. When you sound the advance, the camps that lie on the east side begin their journey. The sons of Aaron, the priests, they shall blow the trumpets, and these will be an ordinance to you through your generations. So again, God's saying, hey, when I move, let's organize this mess. We've got two million people. How do you get two million people going? How do you know when a meeting time is? And here's what's interesting. The name of the trumpet in Hebrew is Hasarah, which sounds very, very, you know, uh, you know religious maybe. But most scholars think it's onomatopoeia. It's the sound the trumpet made. So the name of the trumpet was the sound it made. It's time to gather. It's time to gather together because God's on the move. Might be the very reason Jesus says that when he returns to earth to gather us to his own, he will come with a trumpet sound. 
like an army gathering in the morning. Right? It's gather together time. It's let's get on the move time. Or maybe it's more like the Muppets. But it's this trumpet, this gathering. It's time to gather together because God has something on the move. And there's two reasons they would gather. They would gather to feast and they'd gather to fight. So gathering to fight, when you go to war in the land against the enemy who oppresses you, not just any enemy, the, the terrorizing enemy, you shall sound the alarm with the hosasarah, and you will be remembered before the Lord. God will remember you and fight against the terrorists, and you will be saved from your enemies. But God does the fighting. Also, I want you to gather for feasts. Also, in the days of your gladness, your appointed feasts, the beginning of your months, blow the trumpet over your burnt offerings and your sacrifices and your peace offerings, and they will be a memorial, a reminder that I am the Lord your God. So, you would gather to fight and you would gather to feast. As a church, we gather. Sometimes we're gathering online. In fact, we just saw some statistics show that we actually have two-thirds of our audience actually watches online each week. And so as many people gathering here, there's two times as many gathering through online. So I want to thank you for joining us and continuing. We gather together to worship. We gather together to, to study the Bible together. We, we gather together to celebrate Passover, that eternal ordinance that we mentioned earlier. We also gather in two different formats. We gather our equipping service so that 20-year Bible veterans like ourselves love going deep into books of the Bible like the book of Numbers and seeing how it applies to our life today. To comfortably connect people to God through the Bible and a community of growing Christ followers. But we also create exploring environments like our 11 o'clock service so that we can invite friends who are curious or skeptical or just want to check out Christianity and come and hear the gospel, to hear the message communicated in a way that anticipates their questions, their objections. I've got two friends of mine, Bill and Barb. Both are not Christians and not particularly religious. They would call themselves spiritual people. Bill started attending here about seven years ago, and I did his wedding recently with Barb. She's also not very religious. But he called me up a few weeks ago, and he said, hey, I'm my wife and I are going to be in town. We're going to come to the service. What's going on this weekend? It was Martin Luther King weekend. I said, well, I'm actually going to show how Martin Luther, the father of kind of Protestant churches, it was his influence that got his, a man named Martin Luther King Jr., originally Michael King Jr., renamed himself because his dad was so impressed with what Martin Luther did in standing up against injustice. And so I finished doing the message that day about how Martin Luther impacted Martin Luther King Sr., which impacted Martin Luther King Jr., and she came up afterwards. She goes, wow, it was really fascinating. It was really interesting to see how Christianity helped shape some of the things I care most about. So as you're looking for opportunities to invite people, to look at what we do as a church, why do we give, why do we serve, why do we put two services designed, it's because we believe in gathering together for evangelism, our exploring service, and for discipleship, our equipping service. And we may not have literal trumpets, but we do have two services for equipping and exploring as we try and reach people for God. So, what is the main idea? Well, his main idea, if you put all these three pieces together, is that when someone breaks you out from Egypt and frees you from bondage, you follow them anywhere 
God's bringing me in the wilderness. The Nile looks a lot better than the wilderness. Why are we leaving Egypt? But you fall him anywhere. And you fall him anytime. It's time to move. I don't really want to move. I guess it's time to move. But you also fall him at any pace. Well, you're going faster than I really want right now, God. You're going slower than I really want right now, God. In fact, chapter 10 reiterates this idea. It came to pass on the 20th day of the second month in the second year. Here's that any time. God, any time. That the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle of testimony. Time to move, guys. And the children of Israel set out from the wilderness of Sinai. And now they're journeying to the wilderness of Paran. Anywhere. We're going from one wilderness to another. But God says we're on the move. So they start out for the first time according to the command of the Lord by the hand of Moses. It shall be that whatever good the Lord will do to us. Look at that. As they're facing another wilderness and another battle, look at the attitude in their heart. I can't wait to see the good God will do for us. So they departed from the mountain of the Lord on a journey of three days. There's at any pace. And the ark of the covenant went before them for three days' journey to search out a resting place. And the Lord of the God was above them by day when they went out from camp. And every time the cloud moved, Moses had this little song he sang. And I think it's our key takeaway for today. What if we would follow that flame with an attitude of, rise up, O Lord! Whatever obstacles, whatever unknowns before us, rise up that I could trust you're bigger than them. And then return to the camp. Come back down and settle with us. Here's how Moses says it. So it was that whenever the ark set out, Moses said, rise up, O Lord! Let your enemies be scattered, you're bigger than them. And let those who hate you flee before you. And then when the fire or cloud rested, he would sing or say, Return, O Lord, to the many thousands of Israel. Rise up, O Lord, and return. I don't know if you've ever seen a fire tornado. It actually occurs in the wild. It's one of the most dangerous things about a forest fire. Is that when a fire begins, whether it's little or big, the vortex of the winds that are produced inside of a, uh, a forest begin to spin and make a little fire get a lot bigger. And it actually becomes a pillar. If you've never seen a pillar of fire, this is what happens during a fire tornado. The wind begins to go and it begins to curl. It begins to grow. The fire actually becomes a literal column as it moves up into the air. It's very hard for firefighters to hit. It rises up. Now imagine every time you go to face a challenge, you say, God, I got some unknown, I got some giants, I got some fortified cities. Rise up, O Lord. Rise up. Teach me how to have faith in you. Teach me how to know that you're going to stand up and rise up to whatever comes my way. God, I'm going to trust you that you're going to be my source. And then return. I want to know what it's like to trust you as a still, small voice. To know what it is to be quiet with you and to rest in you. And then as you face more challenges, rise up, O Lord. Rise up. Give me the power I need. Be that pillar of fire that's going to allow me to stand up against whatever comes my way. That's the idea that he's getting at here. That whatever you're facing in your life, whatever challenges you're going through, you say, God, I can trust that you're the one that's going to be the deliverer. You're the one that's going to help me face the challenges. And so sure enough, again, maybe for you, you've never thought of God in this way. How do I follow the flame God has for me? Maybe it's a small flame, and you know that this week, this month, you've got some real unknown challenges before you, and you have to say to God, God, rise up, O Lord. 
teach me that you are bigger than I imagine, that, that you are the pillar I can follow, that you are the one that's going to stand up against whatever's coming my way and whatever I can control and can't control. And then return. Return to the camp. Then I can learn how to rest in you, how to trust you, and how to know that your presence is with me. What might your current circumstances look like? If you said, my goal in life is to trust God's heart because of Passover, but to follow that flame. With an attitude of whatever I'm facing, if I like it or not, it, it doesn't matter if it's bigger than me. Rise up, O oh Lord, because it's not bigger than you. And if God's been sitting you in the same spot, in a circumstance you desperately want to get free of, and you've been sitting there for two days, a month, or a year, what does it look like to follow that flame and say, return, O Lord. Teach me during this time to go deep into myself. To learn what it's like to wait on the Lord, not with grumbling and complaining, but with thankfulness and trust that you have good in store for me. Follow that flame with an attitude of rise up, O Lord, and return to me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your presence. Thank you for the book of Numbers and the reminder of why we can trust your timing because of what you've done for us in the past. There's so many here today who are in their own Egypt and they can't wait to get out. There's so many people sitting in the wilderness here and they're not sure how to follow you. But Father, I ask your Holy Spirit would go forth to every person listening in this room and everyone watching online. God, they would sense that you are for them and you have a plan for good and mercy to chase after them all the days of their life. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.